Hi guys, welcome back to Elsa and Ria's Emergency Room Podcast. This week, we're starting off with Chapter 8 of the book, Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs. Chapter 8 is titled, Vaccines, the Sharpest Arrow in Our Quiver. My name is Elsa, and I have my co-host Ria here. Hi guys. So, this chapter... um it revolved around vaccines and everything about them. So it started off with talking about kind of the history. So obviously that story about how smallpox relates to cowpox and how Dr. Edward Jenner figured out um, the correlation and how it can uh, result in immunity from smallpox. Um, And so we won't go into that, but then, um, Dr. Osterholm actually talks about how, while that may seem like the first time the world discovered this concept of vaccines and immunity, it actually wasn't. So there were tales passed down that Chinese healers in the 10th century employed this practice known as variolation, which is when they, they recognize that scratching or cutting the skin and then inserting a small amount of smallpox pus could then confer immunity. So they basically understood this concept before Dr. Edward Jenner did. Um, And then an alternate method, which I thought was pretty funny, um, was letting the pus dry into a powder and then snorting it, basically. So crack is whack, just try smallpox. I think it's really insane how they were able to figure out that a small amount of uh, the pus can help with the immunity to the virus or whatever disease they were facing. And I think it's even crazier that they were able to really make some sort of powder and inhale it. Yeah, I wonder how they figured that out. Like, obviously trial and error, but like it had to happen to enough people for them to notice. I don't know. Like, it's just like the bloodletting thing. Like, how do you think that came around? I guess trial and error. But I feel like this one has to be more intentional because they had to make a powder out of it and then snort the powder. And who would be willing to snort dried up pus? Like, I wouldn't be. Yeah, maybe that one came second and it was first that they recognized, like, maybe if someone had a wound and then, um, I don't know how pus would, like, drip into the wound, but, like, if that happened to happen and then they realized that. Yeah, maybe. So here's some stats to show you that vaccines actually do work. The number of uh, pertussis cases, which is also known as the whooping cough, uh, was about 200,752 before a vaccine was available. And in 2014, the number decreased to 32,971, which is an 84% decrease. Uh, The same thing happened to measles which was initially a 530 which was initially 530,217 cases per year to 668 cases by 2014 which is a 99% decrease and i think that's really amazing because it really shows how vaccines are effective mm-hmm. and in 1964 we had our last biggest case of rubella and this is a disease that mainly affects unborn children of pregnant women, and 2,100 babies died, and 20,000 babies were born with 
uh, disabilities that were extremely severe. Today, uh, we have 99% decrease in this. So tetanus is another one that had an extremely uh, high death rate, and this also went down a significant percent to a point where it's not something that kills a lot of people. And finally, polio, diphtheria, and smallpox are all diseases that went to zero cases after a vaccine came out. These are all numbers for the U.S., not for the entire world. And because of vaccinations and sanitary precautions, the child mortality and infant mortality rate greatly decreased. So initially, about 20 to 30 percent of children died in their first year, and of the surviving 70 to 80 percent, another 20 died before their first birthday. But this number was greatly reduced, and that's thanks to vaccination and our sanitation system. And then probably the biggest accomplishment, at least that, um, you know, we learn about in history class and a lot of Americans tend to remember, uh, is in 1954 when Dr. Jonas Salk, or a virologist at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, actually developed the first polio vaccine. And so this disease or virus tends to travel through water. Um, I also looked up the fact that it could travel, I think, through respiratory particles as well if someone were to cough. Basically, though, a lot of parents feared this virus because it tended to affect children more than adults. And um, if they went to a playground or a swimming pool or a movie theater, anywhere where there was a large group of people crowded together, they feared that their child would get polio. And basically what it does, it, it is it paralyzes the body so that certain instruments are needed, like leg braces and wheelchairs. Um, so it was really hard for Americans to have to go through that. And I guess the world in general. Um, but luckily, Dr. Salk came up with this vaccine. And I think another kind of side note is President Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, he was probably one of the most famous people in the U.S. to have polio because he was our president. But I mean, um, there are kind of three stories I heard about how he got polio. Um, one, my history teacher told me, which is where he was on a boat and his children fell in the water. So in order to protect them, probably from getting polio, uh, he jumped in and saved them. But then when he got back, he, his legs felt all numb. And so eventually it was found out that he contracted polio. The other two stories are kind of similar. One is just that he fell in the water initially, and then same thing, he felt like pain in his legs or numbness. And then the third story is that he just took a swim in the water and instead of falling in, and that's how he got polio. So regardless, it was from water. Um, and so it was kind of uh, unbelievable to him that something was wrong. Like He thought maybe it was just a muscle ache or something. He had doctors perform like massage therapy. Um, but then eventually after seeing another doctor, the doctor diagnosed him with having polio. And this was kind of shocking because, like I said, they thought this could only or most likely happen to children. But then he contracted it and his his life was changed forever because now he had to he couldn't walk by himself again. You know, he needed either someone to help him or he needed a wheelchair, some like leg braces or crutches. Um, and it's just fascinating because we know this now, 
but it's crazy how he actually hid this from the American public for so long because he didn't want to give off the image that he was disabled, which correlated to weak. So he didn't want to give off that image to the American people and make them think that he wasn't fit to do the job, which I think is really interesting and how we've come a long way. Um, Cause I think now that, that um, well, unfortunately some people still think of that correlation, but at least it's changed in today's world. That's insane that um, it's so easy to contract polio and it's not even a thought today because we have the vaccine for it. Like I, I would never, um, from all like the large gatherings we've had pre-COVID, uh, I would have never thought about polio being something that we can contract because we have the vaccine for it. So it's like, that's something we take for granted, I guess. Yeah, my uh, history teacher, she was actually born, I think, in like 1955. So literally like right after the vaccine was created. And she was like, she was telling us about it. And she was like, thank God that this happened because she was like, knowing my mother, I would have never been allowed to go on like playgrounds or at the swimming pool. So just crazy to think of it like that, too. That'd be my mom, too. (laughs) Probably mine, too. Oh, and something interesting about Salk is that um, some reporter happened to ask him who owned the patent on this vaccine. And I really liked his answer because he said, well, the people, I would say, there is no patent. Could you patent the sun? So this is just interesting because it places the emphasis on, you know, this idea of public health. Like, it's not really about the money. It's just because the overall goal is protecting the people. Yeah, I like that quote, too. And I wish, like, medicine was still like that, or more like that, that, like, it's diverted. Yeah, which actually Dr. Osterholm talks about later in the chapter. So Dr. Osterholm writes that even without a patent, the vaccines are economically viable. And what this means is that it's good for the polio vaccine business and also for the general economy to create vaccines because it boosts the economy. And so because of this, uh, there were five, there were uh, pharmaceutical companies that were willing to produce SOX vaccine. And so between 1955 and 1962, there are about 400 million doses that were given to people all around the United States alone. And so all these people were vaccinated against smallpox and polio. And we mentioned earlier how it's crazy that we can't even fathom not being in large groups because we fear polio. And that's because currently we have the standard lineup of immunizations that they started giving out during the 1960s and 70s. So these include diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, and also measles, mumps, and rubella, and chickenpox. So currently uh, kids need to get all of these before they go to school because we need that herd immunity to protect everybody in the school and especially those who have uh, immune defici- immunodeficiency problems. So one would think with all this evidence that vaccines work, there would be a large push for people to continue getting vaccinated. However, there have been groups of people who think that vaccines have adverse reactions and have possibly been giving their kids autism amongst other diseases. So there's no evidence to show that vaccines give children autism. And so there's no valid reasoning or anything to back up these claims. 
and even though there's a lot of there are even though there are a lot of conspiracy theories i think the best method is just to like we mentioned in the last few chapters believe what the scientists say and get your kids vaccinated so that we have herd immunity and can protect those who are unable to get vaccinated yeah i agree um I think the reason why this theory kind of caught a lot of uh, attention was because there was a scientist who released a paper or some form of writing saying that uh, that it does like uh, vaccines do cause autism. But then I believe he took it back after realizing that there maybe his research was wrong or however he came to that conclusion. Um, But unfortunately, that's the part of the story that people don't really know that he took it back. Um, but I wish that was spread, but because now like the damage is done and you can see that by looking at the stats for, um, I guess, measles, like we mentioned, there was a big reduction in cases in the U S but now, um, it's actually coming back. So it was eliminated by the year 2000, but now, uh, because of, uh, children from other countries visiting the U S uh, who have measles because they haven't had the vaccine. Um, now it's exposing our unvaccinated children. And so there was actually an outbreak in 2015 that made 147 people sick. And it was 131 specifically in California because I, I guess it was because um, of the attraction Disneyland. But yeah. I think that's so frustrating for the people who work so hard to get this thing reduced to zero. There's definitely people who like lived through this to see it be almost eliminated in the U.S. and now it's coming back. And I feel like I would find that so frustrating. Yeah. So then there happened to be a shift where companies no longer um, found vaccine production to be beneficial in terms of the economics so big pharmaceutical companies started uh drifting away from producing vaccines and started producing more um forgot what they called them like um like maintenance drugs where they're just for the you know like these diseases that um people are always going to have so they're always going to need medication so in terms of the economics, that makes a lot of sense because there's always going to be a demand for the supply. Um, and so the five leading drugs generated uh, more than $49 billion in sales. And the this included the three autoimmune drugs, Humira, which is made by AbbVie, um, which brought in $12.54 billion dollars. Uh, Remicade, which is made by Johnson and Johnson, which brought in nine point twenty four billion dollars. Enbrel, which is made by Wyeth, and it brought in eight point fifty four billion dollars. So, and then there was Solvati, which is for hepatitis C, made by Gilead Sciences, that brought in ten point twenty eight billion dollars. And Lantus, which is for diabetes, so it gives you insulin, and uh, this was made by Sanofi. And it brought in $8.54 billion. And then overall, the 10 biggest selling pharmaceutical products combined generated $83 billion. And now when we compare this to how much vaccine manufacturers are making, 
um, there's a combined sale price of $23.4 billion. So compare that to what I just said, $83 billion, and look at the difference. So technically, that's only 2 to 3% of the overall trillion-dollar drug market. So you can see why it isn't really beneficial for companies to be producing vaccines. Sad, but that's just the economics of it. Yeah, I think it's hard for any company to invest their time into something that they're not going to profit out of, even if it's for the betterment of the world. So I understand why they wouldn't be as drawn to making vaccines. Yeah, and also I think um, on a logistical sense, it's easier because they talk about how it's one thing like creating like a drug for cholesterol, let's say, um, your Lipitor, that's chemical synthesis where it's just like you're creating that chemical, which is already, I guess, like something your body should be producing, just like insulin, right? Um, But then a vaccine is like more a biological growth of something. So you have to grow this virus or this viral particle. So it's something that you have to be um, probably a lot more careful with, or it it might just have to take um, a lot more time, probably, I would imagine, just because it's something foreign that your body isn't supposed to have. So you got to be careful that it's in the right amount and that it doesn't contain anything. I mean, in general, everything should contain exactly what it's supposed to, nothing extra. But yeah. So the first step is internal testing, which is done on cells and it's low level. And then this is moved up to animal testing. And then finally, it's moved up to human trials. And the human trials come in three phases. The first phase tests the safety of the vaccine. The second one is uh, testing different dosage levels to see which one ensures the best safety and also is the most effective. And the third one finally tests the effectiveness of the drug or vaccine on enough uh, human subjects so that we could see different factors affect the uh, vaccine or the drug that we are testing. So for example, the age, the gender, the pre-existing conditions, if the woman is pregnant or not, are all factors that can affect the effectiveness of the virus, of the vaccine. And so phase three of the trials are double blind, which means that the subject and the administrator both don't know um, who's given the actual drug and who's given the placebo. And at the end of the experiment, it helps draw more accurate conclusions because there's no way that the administrator could accidentally give um, the actual vaccine to certain people, which would cause discrimination, um, which would throw off the entire trial. And um, But this is usually really expensive because a lot of um, subjects are needed, a lot of vaccine and placebo are needed. And this needs to be monitored by people. So this takes a lot of uh, resources. And so this it isn't usually done until the pharmaceutical company knows that they have a good chance of being FDA approved. And I thought this next sentence was really crazy. Today, a pharmaceutical company can expect that getting a new vaccine license will take more than a decade of work and a billion dollars of investment. A billion dollars in investment is so much money And a decade of work is so much time. And it makes me wonder, like, do we always get our vaccines in time or is there a delay 
And with COVID currently, I know SARS has been around for a while, but how did we manage to get a vaccine so quickly within a year? Yeah, I put a note to this one saying um, this is actually the one thing that Dr. Osterholm has gotten wrong so far, because um, clearly we can make a vaccine in nine months, which is insane. Um, And I know like sometimes people get a lot of hate for questioning uh, certain things about the vaccine and everyone's like, oh, come on, just take it, whatever, right? But I think this is the one instance where it's probably okay to at least be a little, I mean, maybe hesitant or just at least curious how um, a vaccine is created so quickly. And I guess it is natural to just like consider its safety because of the speed of it. And I know like um, the leaders have been saying that it's due to the technological advances in science, which is how we could have done this uh, as quick as we did. But I think it's, not only that, but just the the eminent need for this vaccine, and then also how um, normally it's like you do phase one, and then you have the FDA review, and then after the FDA FDA reviews, then you go back, and then you start phase two. So it's like one step after the other. But at least with COVID nineteen, I think there was a bit of overlap um, because like while phase through phase one was still happening. Uh, towards the end, the FDA already started to review. I didn't know there was overlap, so I I was also curious, like, why it was done so quickly. But I figured they were just speeding up the process, and I heard they were, like, alleviating some of the protocols they had to follow, but nothing that would compromise, like, the safety or the um, effectiveness of the vaccine. But it's interesting that they overlapped it so during phase three there's a period called the valley of death which is when there's research development testing and costs that are piling up there's no revenue being created because we're still in the valley part of the phase three and once the uh, vaccine gets fda approved it can finally start making profit so during this part of phase three, the pharmaceutical company has to be careful because they have a lot of things to consider. For example, is the vaccine effective? Are there serious side effects? Would there be a market for the vaccine? And would it even have FDA approval? Because they're spending so much money on it, um, they need to make sure that they would make profit out of this because at the end of the day, they are still a group of people who need to you know make money it's not like uh it's not like a charity thing unfortunately and there are a lot of investors who can help uh alleviate the stress and alleviate the financial stress that is placed on pharmaceutical companies but oftentimes that's not enough so the bill and melinda gates foundation is one of the many large foundations that Uh, partnered with academic research groups, pharmaceutical companies, and product development partnerships to develop a vaccine for HIV or AIDS, and also a more effective vaccine for malaria, which are two of the biggest uh, killers in Africa. Another interesting thing uh, from this is when Dr. Osterholm says 
that public health officials can predict when a vaccine will be available, but these predictions are usually wrong. And so I wonder if they make these predictions to keep the public calm, like to, or because maybe they're in the process and it's a hard process to get approved. Because like they said before, it takes a decade. But I wonder if there's also the factor of keeping the public calm. Yeah, that's true. They don't really technically know. No one ever knows. I guess they can put a number on it. Um, but you can do that with anything in life and then stuff happens. Yeah, you're so. right. And I think uh, Dr. Osterholm goes more into this when he says that it's hard to manufacture something that's 100% effective. But even having that 30 to 60% effectiveness is better than not getting vaccinated at all. For example the influenza vaccine it has to change every year because the influenza virus is always changing up and so people say they got vaccinated but they still got sick um and so people may and so people might wonder is it even worth getting vaccinated dr Osterholm says the simple answer is yes because would you rather get vaccinated and have a 30 to 60 percent chance of beating it or not get vaccinated and be completely vulnerable to whatever the virus to whatever the virus is going to do to you and i think that's um a good way of thinking about it you want some sort of immunity from whatever you're trying to fight against and yeah, the way they kind of predict, because I always wondered how they know what strain of influenza they should create a vaccine for if it's mutating um, so frequently, I guess. Um, and I didn't know this until reading this, but Dr. Osterholm says that you basically observe what's going on in the southern hemisphere of the world because when it's their fall, it's our spring. So we can kind of see what's happening over there and then use that to predict which influenza virus strain is going to be with us when fall comes or winter comes which I thought wow like I didn't even know that that like I don't know it was just crazy to hear that because it was the first time I heard that um but then I also wondered who protects the southern hemisphere then like how did they do they have vaccines I think uh it's really good that we can observe the southern hemisphere and act accordingly for the northern hemisphere it's like we have an advantage um but like you said i wonder what the southern hemisphere does then maybe they just get the short end of the stick every time or maybe it depends on where it shows up first because maybe it's based on like temperature it maybe it's not always the southern hemisphere that like gets the virus first you know i don't know and then there's the threat of bioterrorism and just always the threat of viral particles causing a pandemic eventually what dr osterholm talks about for this last portion of the chapter is basically just all the different kinds of government programs that are coming up so you have project bioshield which actually fun fact dr fauci was a part of uh he came up with the name and that one was mainly for um bioterrorism prevention then you have barda which was another one for development of necessary vaccine drugs therapies diagnostic tools for the public health 
medical emergencies, and BioShield joined that part of BARDA. And you have the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, CEPI. So that's another one that is working with major vaccine manufacturers to try and be more prepared and bringing vaccines that are needed to the public and just prevent epidemics and pandemics from happening. So I guess the main thing is that these these organizations are coming up. They want to do something because they see how infectious disease could potentially ruin the world. But the main thing that stands in the way of them creating vaccines and trying to improve public health is the fact that it's really costly to to make these vaccines and then um, to distribute it to you know the world, I guess. And then the return on investment isn't guaranteed because let's say by the time they make the vaccine, there is no longer an outbreak. Like it was managed in other ways. So now what do you do with this vaccine? People aren't really going to buy it. So because of this, and probably because the government can't recognize it as being such a big threat right now, maybe after COVID things will change. Um, But because of this, the government doesn't really want to put in more money than is needed. So they'll give an initial amount, let's say like a few billion dollars, I guess, for like a three-year time length. But then when it comes time to renew that, it isn't like a guaranteed like yes of course it's going to be renewed it's it more comes down to like that that time like at three years and then it's like uh it's a question up in the air so because of it not being a long-term project a lot of vaccine manufacturers don't really want to get involved because they don't know if this is something that they can sustain i guess Um, And when you don't have sustainability like that, it's worrisome for vaccine manufacturers and I guess anyone in general. Um, So, yeah, that's why it's difficult for a lot of big pharma companies to get on board. But I guess if anything, the future is bright with this CEPI. But specifically, I think the future is bright with CEPI just because Dr. Osterholm has personally been involved in CEPI's meetings and um, knows it from the inside so he remains hopeful about this one and um, urges the general public to pay attention to this organization's Mm -hmm. process because our lives could depend on it so chapter nine is titled malaria aids and tuberculosis lest we forget and it starts off with a quote from dr jim young kim who is the president of the World Bank. If you look at the three diseases, the three major killers, HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria, the only disease for which we have really good drugs is HIV. And it's very simple because there's a market in the United States and Europe, Africa, or maybe parts of India, they have harder times affording uh, the virus or the treatment. And so uh, the drugs are marketed toward regions like the United States and Europe which have good markets and have people who can afford the drugs, which would make it profitable for the pharmaceutical companies that are manufacturing it. So this is explained with this next statistic. In 2014, uh, there are about 36.9 million people living with HIV worldwide and 1.2 million deaths from AIDS. And there are about 9.6 million cases of tuberculosis and 1.1 million deaths um, according to the 2015 statistics. And also, there are 214 million cases of malaria 
and 438,000 deaths that same year. And so this seems like a large amount of people who are getting sick or affected and who are dying. So this doesn't catch as much flack as the tens of cases of smallpox that might pop up in some major city around the world. For example, some city in the United States. That's probably just because of the fact that something like smallpox is rare or like not commonplace. So when we see it, we freak out because it's not the ordinary versus something like HIV, which is an endemic. So we're living with it for like, we're eternally, we're just going to live with it until like, um, you know, a vaccine or something comes out that eradicates it. But um, because we're just like so used to it, we don't get surprised hearing these numbers. So Bill and Melinda Gates created their Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation based on the simple phrase, all lives have equal value. And basically what they're saying is that every child deserves an equal opportunity to grow up healthy and have the proper resources to thrive in whatever environment that they are in. So each child needs to follow Maslow's hierarchy of needs where they need the basics first, such as proper health, proper food, and this will help them go further in life. Then Dr. Osterholm starts talking about, you know, all these different aspects of malaria. Um, The first aspect he talks about is the usual treatment. First, he talks about the treatment methods. The two most effective drugs are quinine and artemisinin. And so these are ancient remedies derived from nature, tree bark, and a plant. And specifically, then he talks about how uh, malaria works, like, you know, how individuals become affected. So we talked about this in the last season. And then also, I think Elsa talked about it either last episode or um, the episode before that. But basically, you have the protist uh, called plasmodium. And then this infects the specifically Anopheles mosquito, which is important because later on he talks about how a different type of mosquito causes dengue, yellow fever, and Zika. So right now we're focusing on the Anopheles mosquito. And then again, it's just in the mosquito saliva. Then when it bites the human, it travels through the blood to the liver and then reproduces that way. Symptoms include high fever, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, sweaty or shaking chills, or both, fatigue and headaches. And because of the liver involvement, jaundice may develop. Severe cases can result in encephalitis, breathing problems, and anemia, which then can lead to coma or death. Um, When you don't have the means of treatment, let's say because of poverty, unclean water, not very many medical facilities near you or support, this condition can become quite or more likely to be deadly. In terms of transferring, um, yes, it's through a mosquito vector, but then also it can be through blood transfer. So like through sharing a needle, blood transfusions that aren't screened, and then vertical transmission from mother to unborn child. And then unlike many of the infectious diseases we talk about specifically with viruses, malaria can recur. So you can have it once and then you can have it again. So while we do have those two treatment methods, they are, or the world in general, especially Bill and Melinda Gates, they're trying to work on any other treatment methods that could be more effective, whether they be something dealing with medicine or maybe something as simple as employing a lot more of bed nets. So, you know, that's the eventual hope and goal. 
but a lot of people had said that trying to eradicate malaria is expensive, complicated, and impractical. And at first, I, I thought I, I agree, because to think about eliminating, first of all, all the mosquitoes that must have it, second of all, then the protists that infect the mosquitoes, like how do you, I don't know how to go about that whole process. It might be near impossible to eradicate but I feel like it could definitely be uh, minimized. Yeah, so that's exactly what I thought. Um, And it seems like they are doing a really good job at minimalizing it because since Bill and Melinda Gates have been on the case of malaria, cases dropped about 25% from 2004 to 2016 with deaths falling by 42%. And that's probably because malaria funding increased nearly tenfold during that time as they witnessed these changes occurring. Some of the methods of intervention that have helped specifically include timely diagnosis and treatment, indoor spraying with effective agents and probably like something similar to a pesticide, and then bed nets that have been embedded with these insecticides. So I go to India um, every couple of years and India is like known for the mosquitoes. So in my dad's house, they have to have bed nets for every bed and also for every window there needs to be it needs to be netted and nothing can be open for more than a minute without a mosquito or a fly coming in and these all the flies and the mosquitoes both bite um thankfully they don't really carry diseases as far as i know especially in my dad's area but i know in different areas they do in comparison my mom's house uh we only have flies but we leave the doors and everything open all day every day they open it at six in the morning and the door stays open until, I think, 7 or 8 p.m., where they close the doors finally. And you would think, like, there's a ton of mosquitoes coming in, but actually there's literally almost nothing coming in. And I think it's because of where it's located. And also, um, we have, like, animals, so maybe... I don't know how exactly how it works, but, yeah. Another interesting thing, so to combat this at my dad's house, they actually bought fish. Um, the specific type of fish that eats the mosquitoes because the mosquitoes will go into the pond area and like go on the water and so while the mosquito goes on the water the fish will jump up and eat the mosquito and also eat the eggs and so after um, I was actually there when they bought like one or two of the fish I think they called them guppies I don't know the actual name for them but these fish multiplied so quickly and now there's like hundreds in that small pond like the levels of mosquitoes are like drastically low. Guppies aren't practical for every everything. Um, I don't think they're practical for like drier areas where the water would need to be maintained, but just thought that was really interesting. No, that is really interesting. I actually haven't heard of that one before. But after you mentioned you explained it, I feel like where they could I mean obviously it might be expensive, but where they could employ those fish, I feel like that's probably a really good um, intervention method I feel like that would probably be good to you know put these fish in locations if it's feasible and uh, affordable but then also I guess maybe a worry with this mm-hmm. is that it um, upsets like the ecosystem we bought I think five fish and I remember thinking that's not going to do anything but my cousin was like don't worry they multiply so quickly and then literally a month later he sent me a picture and there are almost a hundred fish like it was just a swarm of fish in that little pond i would think that's probably because 
if it's just that pond and it gets introduced mm -hmm. to that environment, that means there's nothing, no predator that's trying to eat it. And because it has like this supply of um, flies, which is its food, then it's just going to keep eating until like, keep eating and keep multiplying until that supply of flies runs out or until, you know, there's so many fish where now they're the ratio of like flies to fish or disfavors the fish. So another method of uh, controlling malaria that they are testing out is sterilizing mosquitoes and releasing them into the wild. The effectiveness of this technique is not known and the consequences it'll have on the ecosystem is also not known. And experts are saying it'll take maybe like 10 years to figure out if the strategy will even work. So it's very inconclusive and it's highly speculative. So the scientists are trying to figure out there is a way to give the modified sterilized male mosquitoes an advantage over the natural uh, in the wild mosquitoes. And so this would cause this would mean that the sterilized male mosquitoes would be mating with the females in the wild. So no progeny would result, and this would ultimately result. cause a decrease. There's active and passive measures taken to control insects and other bugs. Uh, the active measures include insecticides to kill the insects and pharmaceuticals to treat the disease and symptoms. And the passive measures are more like bed nets or maybe uh, the handheld bats that they use to kill bugs. And there's also something that's being tested, which is the insecticide-treated wallpaper. But for this, the insecticide spring must be repeated every three to four months. So the Gates Foundation is going after something called the single dose cure which is a pill that would wipe out all the parasites in the body but yeah a lot of research still needs to be done and then next dr osterholm ta starts talking about hiv aids and so i mean most of the stuff he says is stuff that we heard before but i guess the biggest thing that he tries to uh, hit home on is just how like for us after it being such a terrible thing to be diagnosed with we've come a long way where we have this cocktail of drugs that makes it more manageable and not a death sentence which is great if you can afford these drugs so then for countries who can't afford these treatments they they suffer so some stats on this is that there are two million new hiv infections each year and sub-saharan africa accounts for almost 70 percent of them the countries that make up this region tend to not be able to afford treatments, which is why it's horrible. And then on top of that, there are a lot of other societal issues that come along with HIV AIDS, such as people being afraid to come forward and uh, look for treatment just because this would mean job discrimination, social ostracism, or religious persecution in countries like Nigeria, Uganda, and Russia. I guess when the UN came together to kind of try and decide how they can create a, a plan to end AIDS in the future. Um, they were writing up some documentation and a lot of countries had some issues with the wording. So a lot of countries um, felt that the wording went against what their um, culture, what their country believed in. So for example, the Vatican, which is a non-voting member, 
was not in favor of any mention of birth control and also wanted emphasis on abstinence and fidelity during marriage. Another example is um, people in Iceland did not like the term sex workers and other people thought it was distasteful, which is the word uh, Dr. Osterholm uses to uh, single out groups such as IV drug users or uh, homosexuals, transgender people and prisoners who are more at risk for certain diseases. And I think that while all these claims are valid and I feel like each person is entitled to have their own feelings about uh, what they believe is distasteful, I think that it's still important to not make something so taboo that you can't even talk about it. I think that's where um, the healthcare system would fall apart in that specific country. Um, for example, um, with the Vatican placing an emphasis on abstinence, I think this might seem um, great for them, but in actuality, um, I think teaching safe sex in schools is the best way to ensure that people like learn the best, you know? You can't just like tell someone not to do something and expect them to follow it. You should give them the options and let them choose for themselves because at the end of the day, it's not your body and you can't make decisions for someone else, you know? And I know a lot of countries might place emphasis on their cultural values or their religious beliefs. But at the end of the day, if you're looking at just healthcare, I think it's important to recognize that each person is their own, is their own being. And also that uh, you can't force anyone to do anything and you can't force someone to be quiet about something that they're going through because everyone re- requires the same medical attention. No, oh, yeah, that, that's definitely a good point. I think, um, especially when it comes to someone's health, I know everyone thinks they're trying to do what's best by implementing these certain uh, opinions. But at the end of the day, I think the overall goal is just to try and prevent disease and death. Every rule or decision made should keep that at the forefront of the list and like priorities. A lot of money has been invested into finding a vaccine for AIDS because it's taking the lives of so many people every year. As Dr. Fauci said, it's a scientific dilemma because uh, his quote directly is, the body doesn't like to make neutralizing antibodies against HIV, and we're going through all kinds of the most eloquent science you can imagine. And then he goes on to say the different uh, forms of therapy and treatment that they're trying so these include cryo-electron microscopy, structural biology, and x-ray crystallization. And what this does is it gets the right conformational form of the envelope to engage germline B-cells to induce a protective response, which is directly taken from Dr. Fauci. This is very complex and, you know, there's a lot of research going into it, but hopefully, you know, something works and we can get a, a vaccine for AIDS that's more effective. But Dr. Osterholm writes he doesn't see an effective vaccine anytime in the near future. And it's still a war that we're facing against HIV and AIDS without a nuclear weapon is how he phrases it. But then another thing he says is um, we have to think of that war as a series of ongoing local battles. So basically, it's not something that we can defeat like in one go. It's like small steps that we take to 
make small victories. And eventually we'll get to that, you know, finale. Tuberculosis is another disease that's uh, highly infectious and also deadly if untreated. So Dr. Osterholm says that tuberculosis is something that should be more of a concern to us because so many people are dying from it. And it's becoming more and more drug resistant. What is tuberculosis? It's caused by a bacterium that can affect different parts of the body, but mostly the lungs. It's spread person to person through the air, but it's harder to pick up than measles or influenza. In healthy people, tuberculosis might not have that many symptoms because the immune system can effectively fight it off. But in people who have HIV is where this becomes a huge problem because the HIV-infected people already have a compromised immune system, and so the tuberculosis bacteria can spread through the lungs and then onto whichever organ the bacteria wants to. These people have a lot of damage to their lungs and are highly infectious to other people. So the WHO estimates that about one-third of the world's population has a latent form of tuberculosis. And so people who have the latent form have a 10% lifetime risk of the disease becoming active, which is not that high. But active tuberculosis symptoms include coughing, sometimes with blood, chest pain, weakness, weight loss, fever, and night sweats. And tuberculosis without treatment kills about 45% of its victims. So you can see how deadly it really is without proper treatment. But the good news is that um, after all of our efforts in the past 15 years, the mortality rate has decreased by 47%. The bad news, though, is that a lot of the times new cases of tuberculosis are actually not reported. And specifically, it's a third of cases that are not reported, which is a lot when you think about it. Yeah, that is a lot. And he says... That in 2009, in Southern Africa, 80 people died in a mining accident and there was an outrage. But then the same year, 1,500 miners died of tuberculosis, but no one even noticed. So there's not really an emphasis uh, placed on tuberculosis, which might be because it's so commonplace. And like you said before, um, when something is just so common, it's easy to overlook. So maybe that's why. But it's definitely something that needs to have more attention, needs to be monitored and treated better. Yeah, especially now as cases are increasing, at least because multi-drug resistant tuberculosis is starting to become more of an issue. Fortunately, we have the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation coming to the rescue. They are trying to work on vaccine development, um, rapid diagnostics, and other new drugs to combat resistance to these resistant strains of tuberculosis but they are definitely going to need government intervention because nothing really gets done without their help all right guys thank you for joining us this episode and we'll see you next time bye